Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Okay, so it is um, about 6.01 in the morning. So welcome everybody this morning to um, Strength to Strength. If you would uh, mute your devices, that would be um, helpful. And um, so this morning we're looking forward to hearing about... um, hearing from Leo about the kingdom. So uh, Leo, if you want to maybe just um, introduce yourself and uh, then the time is yours. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Leo Evie, like has already been in- introduced. And um, I'm, a, I'm a lumberman by trade and a Christian by, uh, by profession. So... Uh, that sort of introduces me without going into another hour long uh, introduction. So we'll just get that part. So uh, this morning, I would like to uh, share a while on the uh, glorious majesty of his kingdom. And I'm launching that off of Psalm 145, um, verse 10. Can everybody hear me okay? All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. To make known the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth unto all generations. So that's kind of where I'm launching my inspiration from this morning. And I'd like to begin with a prayer. Um, so I'll, just a moment, I'll pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our debtors as we forget our, give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. In First Chronicles 29, verse 11, we have this verse. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. So, when we think of the kingdom of God, I don't know what everybody thinks of the kingdom of God, but um, In the, in the Gospels, we have this sudden announcement by John the Baptist and by Jesus himself that the kingdom of God had arrived. And what a strange message, because this message landed right squarely in the kingdom of God. The idea of the kingdom of God was not a new idea. And uh, there, uh, in Exodus, for instance, 19.6, 
we have that God said that they were to be a kingdom of priests. And you put the concept of them being an evangelistic kingdom in the world that they found themselves in. And all through the, the, the in Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 20, all through first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, the idea and the concept of the kingdom was saturated there. Psalm 22, 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and the government governs among nations. Psalm 45, 6, thy throne of God is forever and forever. The scepter of thy kingdom is the scepter, is the right scepter. And that whole idea of a scepter comes out in Hebrews chapter 1 as well. And um, there's scores of references of a of the concept of a kingdom in the Old Testament. And um, so the, this, the kingdom, the glory of this kingdom was exposed to the world around them in the fact of their peculiar laws, their tabernacle, their temple. And they were a, a, uh, a light to the world around them in which they lived. When I think of the kingdom, I, I, I like to think of it in this way. I like to think of the concept of the kingdom was, was before the creation in the Godhead community. The conception of the kingdom in Genesis 3.15, the embryonic form of the kingdom in the covenant people at Mount Sinai and at the, uh, at the, uh, the birth of the kingdom and the incarnation of Christ we see a, a very paradigmic shift in what the kingdom of God is like. And then we have the consecration of the kingdom at the cross. We have the confirmation of the kingdom at the resurrection. And we have the maturity of the kingdom in the church age. And we have the full maturity of the kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. Amen. So um, when Jesus and when John the Baptist and and Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There was a, a, a sense of change in the air. There was something different about this message that got the attention of the hearers. Because like I said, there was a kingdom here. So what was Jesus referring to when he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand? There was a, years ago, there was an airline that had this uh, saying that for advertisement that said the difference between a little bit and a whole lot is not as great as the difference between a whole lot and just a little bit more. Now that might not seem like it said anything, but when you think about that, the little bit more that Jesus brought to the world, the difference was greater than what the greatness was before. Man. It's a little bit like the difference between 211 degrees and 212 degrees when it comes to water. There is suddenly a change in the paradigm. There is a change in the uh, meticular structure. And um, this, this 
this glory and this majesty that we want to talk about this morning is is not always so obvious. And um, it takes the cheeks um, a new birth experience so that our eyes can see. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see or understand the kingdom of God. Neither can you enter into the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. It reminds me of the story of Elisha the prophet and his his servant. And they woke up one morning and the Syrian army surrounded the city. And the servant of Elisha cried out and said, what shall we do? And Elisha prayed for his servant that his eyes would be open so that he could see. And his eyes were open and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. Man. And that's the kind of experience that a person needs to see or understand the kingdom of God. I have a little story I want to tell. In our community, because I'm a lumberman by trade, this story has a, a significant meaning to me. In our community back in the 50s, there was a man by the name of John Davis who had a sawmill. And incidentally, he built his sawmill directly over a stream. And maybe if you're not a sawmiller, you don't know what the significance of that is. But the idea was of having the sawmill over the stream was so that he didn't have to get the sawdust out from underneath the sawmill. The stream of water took the sawdust away. Now, that wouldn't work very well in our day and age with environmental protection things. But back in the 50s, that worked. That was a very practical way to to get the sawdust out from underneath the sawmill. Well, Mr. Davis was a very particular man. So much so that he went to work in dress-up clothes every day. He ran sawmill in dress-up clothes. He wore a, a white shirt. He wore a black derby hat. He had uh, cufflinks on his sleeve. And um, you would have thought he was going to church. Not only was Mr. Davis a very particular, well-groomed man, but he was very habitual in the way he did things. And ex- exactly at noon every day, he would shut his sawmill down and he would get his stool out. And those of you that know anything about a circular sawmill know that um, you sit down beside your saw and you sit on a stool and you rotate your saw and you sharpen those bits. You swedge it and then you foul each tooth. And while he sharpened his saw, he would get his lunchbox out and have his lunch. He also had a pet crow named Gus. Gus knew Davis's habits every day, and so he was prepared when the came for lunchtime and shut down. Gus would fly in underneath the roof and sit right down on the on one of the teeth of the saw. And Davis, Mr. Davis would feed this pet crow tidbits out of his lunchbox. And Gus and Mr. Davis were the best of friends. And so when he turned his saw to sharpen the next tooth, the crow would hop back a tooth. 
And so he would just keep doing that until he was done. When he'd done, the crow would fly away. One day, Mr. Davis uh, had a neighbor show up. He wanted him to saw some lumber for a barn that he was building. And uh, his neighbor was in a hurry. And lunchtime came and they weren't done. So his neighbor talked Mr. Davis into working through the lunch hour to get his lunch, his logs sold so that he could be on his way. Well, when 12 o'clock came, guess what? Gus thought it was lunchtime. And he flew in underneath the roof. And he landed on the saw like he always did before. He was gone. Mr. Davis was so upset over the experience that he, sh he uh, shut his sawmill off and said, I wouldn't have killed Gus for all of my neighbor's logs. And the reason I'm telling this story is, is that Gus didn't perceive that there had been a change in the saw, sawmill paradigm for that day, and he was destroyed by it. And the same thing can happen in this change of paradigm in the kingdom of God. If we don't perceive that something has changed, it's going to destroy us. I want to read, uh, I'm going to be turning to a lot of scriptures this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, I want to read. So bear with me. Isaiah verse chapter 9, verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts performed this. Isaiah 37, verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubim, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. This kingdom, of course, we have the, the references of Daniel, his references of this coming kingdom, of which will be set up in the latter days, of which there will be no end. Of course, with any kingdom, to have a kingdom, you must have a king slash ruler. You must have you must have subjects. You must have a domain, and you must have laws. And uh, in Psalm twenty four. We have this question. The psalm says. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? 
the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now, fast forward. How are we going to answer this question? God the Father had one of his best kept secrets for many years and millenniums. You know how it is as a dad, when you have a secret in the household, and the secret involves the family, but you can't let the family know what the secret is. But you're so ecstatic about the, the, um, the secret that you have that you can't help but leave clues out of your mouth once in a while. That's the way God the Father was. All through that history, uh, he would continually give tidbits of clues of what his best-kept secret was. That best-kept secret was revealed at the incarnation of God himself in the birth of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 2, verse 2, we have this kind of question. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Mm-hmm. And, um, and we have this incarnation of God himself, and we have this sudden paradigm change. We have God with us in a way that was never way, that way before. So we have this beautiful story of the Christmas story in the the light that was brought into the world and the hope that was brought into the world. And um, and uh, the, the, the beginnings of a light and a kingdom and a glory and a majesty that heretofore had not been. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus references the, the queen of the south. And we remember the story of Solomon and his kingdom and all his glory and his majesty. And the, the, the news of his glory was, went out throughout all the earth. And we have this queen of Sheba traveling all this distance to come to visit Solomon with all her questions. Bringing gifts for Solomon. And when she came, she said, Half had not been told about the glory of this kingdom. And said, Solomon answered all her questions. And he sent her away with gifts. And Jesus picks up this. He said, The Queen of South came to see Solomon. And he said, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. What a contrast. We have, we have Solomon in all his glory, his throne, the temple. We have the, the display of the laws of God at work. His servants were happy. There was abundance. There was riches like never had been seen before. And yet Jesus said that a greater than Solomon was here. He said that in judgment, the queen of the south was going to rise up 
and condemn this generation for not acknowledging the glory that was in Jesus Christ. John 18, verse 36 and verse 37. Jesus made this statement, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, art thou then a king? In John 19, 19, he said, behold your king. And he said, we have no king but Caesar. So we have the, the, uh, this contrast of a king who was humiliated, who was tormented, who was abused, beaten, and he's standing before a governor of this world. What a contrast. What a clash of kingdoms. Who are the subjects of this kingdom? Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. This kingdom has unique discipleship, unique citizenship. Matthew 16, 24. Um, if any man could be my disciple, first he has to deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. Furthermore, in Luke 14, 26, he said, unless a man hates his father and his mother and his wife and his son and his daughter, yet in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and shall believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Jesus and John said, repent. Those that are these disciples must repent. They must receive the new birth. They must have their eyes enlightened. They must walk in discipleship. In Colossians 1.16, there's a translation that happens. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Where is the domain of this kingdom? It goes to the uttermost parts of the world. A kingdom made up of every tribe and nation and language. Wherever the gospel of this kingdom is preached, that is the domain. This kingdom has unique laws. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven. He said, if it hath been said, but I say unto you. Isaiah prophesied, prophesied of this situation. He said, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. Isaiah 42, 4. He said that out of Zion shall come a law. Why would Isaiah say that there was going to be a law come out of Zion when there was already a law given at Mount Sinai? The Sermon on the Mount defines the ethics and the laws of this glorious kingdom. 
The teachings of Jesus have brought the whole world into a new accountability like never before. We cannot shrug or shake it off. Jesus has robbed humanity of their lack of knowledge of the glorious kingdom of God. The world will never be the same again. The best example of righteousness by the letter is embarrassed by the simplest example of the mind of Christ. We are, present, we are living in the presence of the future, like George Ladd said. The next thing I'd like to do is, there's, there's a beautiful illustration in the creation that I would like to take a look, take a brief moment and compare with the glory of the kingdom of God. In Genesis chapter 1, I discovered this. When I was studying my Sabbath day, Lord's Day subject many years ago, and this, this concept has blessed me ever since. And I would like to read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. It says, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament. Of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. Now listen carefully. Verse 16, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars also. And God sent them in the heaven, pardon me, in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night. And to divide light from darkness, and God saw it was good. Now hold hold that thought a little bit. And if I'm going to go to Second Corinthians chapter three, we want to look at this glory and how God divided light from darkness, and how God is bearing rule in the earth. Second Corinthians chapter three. I'm going to read this section. And I want you to pick out the words that represent this glorious kingdom and its law. Verse three, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, written in uh, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to God. Not that we should are sufficient in ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who hath also made us to be made able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Listen carefully. But if the ministration of death written engraved in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more did the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. 
For even that which was made glorious hath no glory in this respect, by the reason of the glory that excelled. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, but not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look at the end of that which was abolished. But their minds were blinded, for unto this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. I'm trying to identify the paradigmic change that happened at the incarnation of God himself and the glory that followed. So much glory that it eclipsed the glory from before. And what I want to compare to is these two bodies that God created in creation, the sun and the moon. We know that the moon has no light of its own. It borrows or reflects the light from the sun. It's the exact same way in the New Testaments in the, versus the Old Kingdom and the New Kingdom. The reason the Old Testament and the Old Covenant had any light at all is because it was reflecting the greater light, which was going to come over the horizon in Christ Jesus. So God has established these two lights the administration, both administrations had glory, but the administration of the Spirit so outdid the other administration that it disappeared and swallowed it up. There was so much glory in this administration, and this is the glory that so many people in the world missed in the kingdom of God, that it eclipses and swallows up Moses and all that glory. Amen. So anyway, um, the next one I want to pull out, I'd like to go to uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and look at some more of this glory that is used in this language here. Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, before I go there, I want to mention something in, in, uh, in relation to that glory. And the veil that Moses had to put over his face when he came out off the mount versus the glory of Jesus and his kingdom. And I would like to read the comments that first that Peter makes in Second Peter chapter one, uh, uh, verse sixteen. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice from him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. 
we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth into a dark place, unto the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Peter is identifying the glorious mag- magnification of the, of the, on the Mount of Transfiguration that he, that Peter, James, and John witnessed. And he's saying that this glory of this word outstrips the glory that he saw in Jesus on the Mount. That's a stretch of my imagination, but I see glory there. Now I want to turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verse 17. These words here have been part of my heart for a long time. And uh, I'd like to say it by memory, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is his exceeding greatness of his power to us, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that world which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over the body, the church which is his body, the fullness of him who filleth all in all. Those words exalt the glory and the majesty that is with Jesus and his kingdom. In chapter 3, he said, For this call, I bow our my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is there, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Just more scripture that lifts up the glory and the majesty I'd like to take you to uh, John chapter 11. This is another uh, scripture that I find very interesting. And we don't see a lot of words about glory and magnification here, but the context of it exposes it. And this, this, this part of John chapter 11 that I'm going to read is and starting in verse 6. Pardon me, verse 46 was right after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus was getting a lot of fame and and exposure for this resurrection of Lazarus. And what comes next just amazes me. And it it has the foundation of of my eschatology of understanding who Jesus was in his kingdom. But listen to what these rulers and the chief priests have to say. 
But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Now, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Then gathered the chief priests and Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. Now, here's their conclusion. So pay attention to this. If we let this man thus, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. What insight. These are people that were not believers, but they had the in, they had enough perception to know that Jesus as a king in a kingdom was a direct threat to their national identity. Amen. Preach it, brother. And they said something has to change. This man's understanding and preaching of the kingdom of God is going to destroy us. And one of them, named Caiaphas, uh, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in the one, the children of God that were scattered abroad. To me, that's an amazing eye-opener to an unbeliever's perspective of Jesus' kingship and his kingdom and the threat that he was to national Israel. And I would like to turn to Matthew chapter 21 next. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus makes an astonishing statement to his listeners that day. In Matthew 21, verse 20, 42, did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders reject? Did the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Watch out what comes next. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth fruits thereof. Wow. Wow. And what, whosoever, listen to this, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. This is the accountability that the kingdom of God that was ushered in by Jesus himself and his kingdom. The world will never be the same place. The world will never be ignorant of the kingdom of God. And our accountability is attached to that. Just like Moses prophesied way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that there was going to be a prophet king arise, like unto him. And whatever he says, you are accountable to, summarizing it in my words. Matthew 8, verse 12, another Astonishing statement that Jesus made about the kingdom. But he said, this is right after the the uh, the uh, 
the centurion expressed his faith, and he said, Verily I found that so, no, not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that the many shall come from the east and west and shut down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Astonishing words. Astonishing words. Hebrews chapter 2. I'd like to briefly touch that. Oh, pardon me. He, uh, Hebrews 1 first. Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 says, Who being in the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels that he had by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, accountability to the words of Jesus. For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of a reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts from the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Hebrews chapter 13. Another amazing contrast here. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh for, referring to Jesus. For if they escape not him who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he promised, saying, Yet once more I, not, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifying the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken shall may remain. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for God is a consuming fire. What I find so amazing about this, this word picture here is that he refers to God speaking at Mount Sinai as speaking from the earth. And he refers to Jesus as speaking from heaven. And in my natural way of thinking, I think of it in the opposite way. I think of God coming down on Mount Sinai and speaking from earth. Oh, no, speaking from heaven, pardon me. And when Jesus came, he spoke from earth. But this writer is saying it's the opposite way. So what time is it? It's what, 6.45. I need to wrap this up. So... Jesus and his kingdom was God the Father's best kept secret. Jesus isn't a factor in the redemptive kingdom. He is the sum of the redemptive kingdom. Is there any threats to this kingdom? Is there any threats 
to rob Jesus of his glory and his majesty? Well, yes, there is. Of course, we have obviously Satan would like to rob Jesus of this glory and his majesty. He would like to rob his dominion and destroy it, all its beauty and glory and magic, majestical kingdom. But rather, there's a more subtle threat to this glory and this majesty. And that is Moses. Now, it's not that Moses himself was going to rob Jesus of his glory and majesty. No, not at all. In fact, is Moses was lifted Jesus up. And Jesus said, and if I be lifted up, I would draw all men unto me. That's glorification. But humanity has a particular problem. Both churched and unchurched would like to see Moses in his glorious kingdom and laws to stand in all its glory. We as human beings want to see want Moses and his kingdom to be the sun. And we want Jesus and his kingdom to be the moon. At the very least, we want them to share the glory together. But it cannot happen. The glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ must eclipse Moses. And Moses must defer as a servant in the house of God, must defer to the son of who's in the house of God. It must be that way. We want Moses and Jesus to share the same throne, the same glory, the same power, and the same righteousness, but it's not to be had. And this is a very subtle way of robbing Christ of his glory and his majesty. Moses would not have it that way. But so often we are like the Pharisees. We approach Jesus with the attitude, Moses said this, but what sayest thou? Christians too often get it backwards. We want to die, pardon me, we want to live by the law and kingdom of Moses and die by the kingdom and law of Jesus. Not so. We must die by the kingdom and law of Moses and live by the kingdom and law of Jesus Christ. So, are we like Gus the Crow? Are we perceptive that there has been a drastic paradigm change in the kingdom of God? Will we be destroyed by the glorious majesty of this kingdom or will we be blessed? Will we fall upon this stone Christ Jesus and be broken or will it fall upon us and we'll be crushed? I'd like to close with uh, 
with the last verse in Jude. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of the glory of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Leo, for sharing. I really appreciate those thoughts. So we would like to um, open it up here shortly for um, questions and other thoughts and considerations. And uh, maybe before we do that, uh, just one question to start off here uh, with you, Leo. So I appreciated the, the thoughts. Um, everything that you framed there was about being a, a present kingdom, not a kingdom of the, the future. And uh, you said that the, the one threat in this uh, kingdom is um, the glory uh, being on Moses instead of on, on the Son of God, on Jesus Christ. What does that look like uh, practically? Uh, what, what form does that take uh, today in which that would be the case? Very good question. And um, Well, those of you who know me the best, know my keen interest in the subject of the Sabbath day and the Lord's day. And I guess I would just use that as a, a uh, one of the most obvious ones and one of the most interesting ones to me. But it's, it, it happens in many other forms where we, we claim to be citizens of this kingdom, but in reality, we defend the righteousness of Moses in the sense of defending our own rights, which is very uniquely ruled out in Luke chapter 14. Um, when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate father, mother, son, wife, daughter, yea, all that you have, essentially, and your own life also. And uh, sometimes we... Uh, we think of Job, we think of Job's situation where God stripped him of his, all his earthly possessions and his family and all his wealth. And he took away his health and he was sitting in ashes trying to understand God. And we think, my, that must be an, an unbearable situation. But when I consider the discipleship and the demands of the kingdom of God and Christ, I don't see a lot of difference. Not only does Jesus ask for everything we got, my wife, my children, my possessions, and then he wraps it up and says, your own life also. You cannot be my disciple. That takes it one step further than what Job's experience was. And so, as a disciple of Jesus, there's a grieving process that starts when we confess that Jesus is Lord, and when we repent of all our worldly-mindedness, and all of our affections, and all of our right things in this world, 
When we give that up in exchange for Jesus and his kingdom, we begin to grieve. But it better prepares us for anything that Jesus asks of us. We should be the best prepared people in the world to lose our possessions, to lose our health, to lose our wife, to lose our family, and to give our own life in, the, in, the, in exchange for the kingdom. Best people ever in the world for, should be prepared for that. And sickness, by the way. And it, the list goes on and on as far as the, the, the uh, claiming to be, or in the reality, we live by the righteousness of the Moses and, and hope to die by the righteousness and faith which we have in Jesus Christ, but that's not the way it works. The righteousness and the, the Decalogue was designed for us to die by, for I, through the law, am dead to the law. It was never designed for be a life giver. It was designed to, the Decalogue can only do one of two things, and that's either make us self-righteous or convince us that we are sinners in need of repentance. It can only do one thing, do one of two things. And there's, I've categorized in my own mind for my own sake of understanding that there's three groups of people in this world. You have the ungodly, you have the pagans, who want to keep the idea of God the Father and God the Son in the background. And that's one group. You call, I call them the ungodly. And then you have the godly group, people that love God in the sense that every day they pray to him as a one singular God. Every day they understand that they're a sinner. They understand they need, somehow they need justification, but they don't believe that Jesus is the answer. Now we have the third group is the Jesus godly people. Referring to the previous group, there's, there's millions of people in this world that fit that category. And sometimes Christians even slip into that category. But then there is the Jesus godly group. The Jesus godly group understands that that the old covenant and the kingdom that existed there did not have a circular eschatology to it, but rather was slung out of it into the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And humanity has a struggle of going from the one to the other. And it, it's very explicit in the Gospels, the struggle the disciples had, the, the struggle of Nicodemus, of understanding that he must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And so this is this is not peculiar only to Nicodemus. This is peculiar to humanity. The struggle of going from the righteousness of Moses' kingdom to the righteousness of Jesus' kingdom. But we do have the testimony of two individuals who flew, flowed smoothly from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the old kingdom to the new kingdom, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And that was, we have the testimony of Simeon and Anna. Amen. This is a beautiful picture of people whose eschatological understanding and searching of the scriptures, their, their hermeneutical exegesis of their Old Testament scriptures 
allowed them to see Jesus for who he was. A rare gem, a a smooth flow from one kingdom into another kingdom. I don't need it. So we have this beautiful picture of what it was like in the struggle of going from this kingdom to that kingdom. And um, I also wanted to reference uh, John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, I just might want to turn there briefly. I won't take much time here. But this was one thing I forgot. In John 17... Verse 1, he said, Father, the hour is come, referring to his crucifixion. Glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee. Now think about the glorification that was coming through the crucifixion. We don't normally think of that as glory. But he perceived that as glory because he was doing the will of his father. And as that come through that come the resurrection. Through that, we come through the ascension and his enthronement on high. Through that, we have the giving of the Holy Spirit. And in, John, in chapter 17, verse 22, he, does, he makes another unique statement. He says, And the glory which thou gavest me, I give them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Another beautiful part about this glory, glorious majesty of his kingdom is that he's sharing it with us mm-hmm. and he's sharing this glory with us. And I perceive that it was shared with us with the pouring out of the Holy spirit on Pentecost. When the gift of God of himself and the indwelling of God himself become implanted in us, we received that glory. He shared his glory with us in that sense so that we can be partakers of that glory and of that kingdom and live in the presence of the future now, like George Ladd says. Sorry about that. Yes, thank you very much for that. Uh, that's uh, all very, very helpful, very um, inspirational. All right, uh, I'd like to open it up for other questions. We've got a few minutes here. Um, who would have any questions or thoughts to share? Leo, a little along the same line as Glenn's question there, you said that unchurched and churched alike both um, gravitate toward the old kingdom of the old glory. Um, Would you like to describe any more about how even unchurched people uh, go for that? Oh, yeah. I didn't think your question was going to go there, but I'm glad you did. I thought you was going to put me in an awkward situation of trying to decide how church people do that. (laughs) Well, yes. Um, One of the things that was an eye-opener to me is that I've witnessed the self-righteousness of ungodly people and unchurched people that know very little about the, the, um, the, the righteousness of the uh, of the old kingdom or the righteousness of Jesus Christ kingdom, and, and and it's it seems to be obvious to me, and I, I have a, a person in mind right now that that I work with. It seems obvious to me 
that even though they're not picking up the Bible and reading it, they know enough about the righteousness of God, which is implanted into their DNA, I guess their spiritual creation of DNA, to know the difference between right and wrong. Enough so that they justify themselves in that. And this is illustrated by an ungodly man that can point out the shortcomings of a Christian, even though he doesn't claim those ethics for himself. And so I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated with this, with this ability for an ungodly or unchurched person <laughs> to perceive what is right and wrong and also to justify himself in that, that I don't need the Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Very interesting. I really appreciate your analogies with the sun and moon. Uh, it's all very helpful. That has been such a blessing to me. I, I just I just hope that I can articulate that well enough that somebody else can pick up on it. But the words that give it away in, in Genesis are the words rule. He made the sun and the moon to rule over the day and the night. And, of course, there's just oodles of scriptures that refer to the day and night analogy in the kingdom of God. You know, we're the children of light, not children of darkness. And and, uh, in Jesus, or or it was said of Jesus uh, in in second, in uh, first John, that, um, that the darkness is now past and the true light now shineth. I'm just amazed by that scripture too. You could almost take it to imply that that which was, was untrue, but that's not what it's saying. It's just saying that the true light swallows up the previous light because in it inherently didn't have its own light. The only light it had of it was was borrowed light from the from the Son of God. And uh, of course, Malachi four two says, "Unto them that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings." And that check it out. King James, capital S U N. Beautiful. Leo, in light of what you said, David said the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What law was he celebrating? Uh, well, that's a deep subject, John. I was hoping you wouldn't answer, ask that question. I can give you my perspective on it. Based on the illustration we just give, I understand, according to uh, my understanding of Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter 42, that when Isaiah referred to a law that was coming out of Zion, that it immediately implies that Jesus, which was before all things and by whom all things consist, was law, the epitome of law himself. And this is this this. We shouldn't have went here because this is too big of a subject. But before God said, let there be light, Jesus was law. We're not, this kingdom of Jesus Christ is not a lawless kingdom. It's a very lawful kingdom. And Jesus himself being the very embodiment of law and the 
the uh, incarnation of law. And so before David wrote his words, this law existed before the get-go. So David can justifiably say exactly what he did, both in a temporal sense and in a mosaic sense, but also in a prophetic sense in the future of the law, which was going to be exposed and revealed in the incarnation of God himself in Christ Jesus. That's the best way I know how to articulate it in a, in a, in a minute or two. Man. To use your sun and moon analogy, I think all true spiritual people looked at the law of Moses and they saw it was a reflected light and they had some concept of the light it was reflecting. I believe that. Absolutely. That's why David could say the law was perfect. Absolutely the law was perfect. It was perfect in the sense that that was the best the moon could reflect. But I think David saw beyond the moon. Oh, yeah. He is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament in relation Absolutely. to Christ. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And, and um, if I had more time, I, I would take you a little bit further into the train. The, when, the, when, the, when the paradigm changed of the kingdom from King Saul to King David, but I won't go there this morning. Very interesting. Anybody else have um, anything to share? Brother Leo, it uh, stood out to me when you read in Psalm 24, who is this King of glory the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Well, that's David speaking. David was the king. That's right. Why, why is he looking for a different king? Absolutely. That, uh, that really stood out to me. Thank you. Brother Leo, thank you for, for sharing. That was eliminating again um earlier this week i had a dialogue with somebody um in relation to this quote patrick matthew had put this quote out he said this he said the kingdom of god is more than he thought it is an action (laughs) and um i posted on my facebook page and i had a ex-mennonite hyper calvinist man not like that one very good and then I had, um, we had some dialogue on that. And then I had another brother who's a conservative Mennonite. He said this, he just made this comment. He said, God's present spiritual reign over his people, Colossians 1.13, which you used that verse this morning, and Jesus' future reign in the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20. Um, so how do we help dear brothers like that understand Jesus' kingdom right now? I um, how, how do we how do we dialogue? How, how do we have um, dialogue, good conversations without um, alienating each other? Well, um, in the New Testament, there's only two ages referred to, and that's the present age and the age to come. And I guess, regardless of whether uh, 
you adhere to what they referred to as the literal reign of Christ or the present reign of Christ. I'm not really here to argue that point, but I think we would all agree that we're looking forward to a new kingdom and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, according to Peter's words. Mm -hmm. And, and um, again, the accountability that this kingdom brings with it, with the king and his kingdom, puts a heavy uh, accountability on us um, that the scriptures warn will destroy us if we're not paying attention, just like Gus was destroyed when he didn't perceive that there was a paradigmatically change in the function that day. Ooh, okay. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not here to spend a lot of time arguing about a future thousand year reign. What I'm here to help people understand is unless you catch on to what's happening now, it doesn't matter what's happened in the future as far as the reign of Christ, because you're going to be destroyed. Hmm. So that's the gravity that comes with this present kingdom. That there's accountability that comes with it. And Moses himself, like I referred, referenced this at the expense of his own uh, revelation from God. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I, so there's unintended consequences. Yes, there is. Passing that off to the future. I, I appreciate that. And maybe someday we'll have you speak about those unintended consequences. <laughs> Thank you for sharing, right here. Yeah. Well, I think we always need to remember the church is not the absolute kingdom of God. Jesus died to cleanse the church. There's no cleansing needed for that absolute kingdom. This is a mediatorial kingdom, mediating the uh, the reality of that kingdom to this present age. Mm -hmm. uh, and it'll not be absolutely perfect. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think when we make that clarification, people feel a little more comfortable with our uh, compare uh, with our pointing to the church as the mm -hmm. present expression of that kingdom. It's a mediatorial kingdom, mediating mm -hmm. the realities of that kingdom uh, mm -hmm. to an imperfect situation. Uh, and I think people become, Lloyd Hartzler, for instance, would never use the term kingdom of God in relation to the church. To him, that was an absolute kingdom. The church did not completely embody that reality. So I, I think sometimes if we talk reasonably about this present kingdom, uh, that helps a little bit with these people who, uh, want to place it in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, the scriptures make it very clear that there is no, this kingdom that was set up, there's not going to be any paradigmic change in it. There will be a paradigmic change in the church. If I understand, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but there will be a paradigmic change in the church because the church is the prodigy of people who have entered into this kingdom through the new birth who have received the eyesight and see the glory and the majesty of this kingdom. And that results in the church. But I, uh, so yes, the church will definitely go through uh, an event of the coming of Christ, but the kingdom itself will, will last forever unchanged. 
and if again, I, I'm open. I'm open to uh, correction on if that didn't sound right. Thank you for sharing that. There's probably a lot more that could be um, gone into. Maybe that's why Brian said we need to have you talk on that subject sometime. <laughs> All right. Uh, so it's been a blessing to have you with us. Maybe you could uh, close in prayer. Sure. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Today, Lord, give us eyes that can perceive your glory and your majesty. Stamp your image on our hearts. Impose your kingdom in this world. And, and uh, continue your relentless pursuit of humanity. Knock on the doors of their heart. Yes. Humble them under your mighty hand that they might be exalted in due time. And be persistent with your knocking so perhaps the hearts will open their doors and you can go in and out and have supper with them. So this is what I pray for myself. I pray this for this group of people and also for our neighbors and for our, the entire global community. May your kingdom come today. In Jesus' name, my friend. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.